Hebrew Bible to the world, what it tells, not what it says. Thank you, friends and colleagues, for joining me on this podcast. Today, I will simply try to explain what this podcast is all about, what are its goals, what is its methodology, what is it that we can accomplish and what you, the listener, will derive from it. So let's look at the title first and approach this task through it. Hebrew Bible. Okay. Why may you, the listener, be interested in the Hebrew Bible? There may be many reasons, and I would suggest one as well. You may be interested because you are a person interested in spirituality, in religion. You may think of the Bible as a great repository of teaching and morality. You may be using it as a guide to your own daily life, to your meditations, contemplations. It may be your guide in life. Wonderful if that's the case. I started this podcast also from the assumption that the Bible contains all these things and is a great repository of wisdom. And, oh, how much do we need such a wisdom in our turbulent, ever-changing world of uncertainty and confusion? I do think that that approach needs to be defended. So let me propose an argument for why the Bible, and specifically the Hebrew Bible, is important. First, what about those who say that we have moved way past our antiquated origins, that our science, philosophy, technology, society is so much more advanced, and that the Bible contains with it within it nothing much that we can use. Well, let's not close the doors on that argument. Yes, we are more advanced. We are more advanced technologically, scientifically. We know more. We have new ways of living, the information revolution, the internet, the ever-proliferating apps, social media, yes, they have changed our daily life. But have they provided us with wisdom, with knowledge, with satisfaction, with calm? And no, they have not. <coughs> Has there been a time ever before in which man's humanity to man was greatly uh, increased and more manifest than in the past century and the coming century doesn't look any better. We live in the time of crumbling social structures, great unhappiness, growing mental illness and uh, social disorganization. Why is that? Well, it is I believe to a great degree because we no longer share basis. We no longer have a common body of 
knowledge and inspiration that unites us. The world is filled with half-baked theories, uh, superficially attractive theories, teachings of all kind with its myriads of adherents, and that is setting us at conflict for one another. The Bible for thousands of years had been the bedrock of Western civilization, but also influenced all of humanity. It is quite clear that most of our institutional structures and the assumptions that gird them, undergird them, is based on biblical teaching. A great deal of literature is now recognizing that the republican and constitutional approaches are based on the Hebrew Bible, that the way we run our politics is ultimately dependent on the perception of uh, the book of Deuteronomy and uh, the division of powers and the limitation on powers of the king and uh, a good balance between various power structures in the society. Eric Nielsen has written a book that started this movement of the Hebrew foundations of political uh, structures of the Western world and specifically of American republicanism. But beyond that, the Bible is what uh, the Western society has tested against, against when it uh, produced new modes of thinking, uh, new uh, societal structures, new forms of governance. Uh, it is enough to look at the kinds of debates that have taken place uh, since the Renaissance to see that especially in the English and German-speaking world, there are constant references to the Hebrew Bible as the arbiter of various ideas. It goes without saying, and it's quite clear, that our moral presuppositions are based on the Hebrew Bible. What is good? What is right? What is straight? We're still greatly influenced by this, even to this day, despite couple of centuries of public religiosity. When I say that, I mean it's grown, but it started about two centuries ago, uh, really at the Renaissance, and gradually has overtaken the society. So Hebrew Bible remains a repository of wisdom. That's point number one. It's an important point. Two, to the world. So, if we have anything to say, it is the foundational cultural bedrock, and that is the only power I see that can unite us. Look, the world is becoming smaller. Various cultural groups and nations that have not known of one another are beginning to recognize, come into contact and dispute with one another. China is rising throughout the world and that's not a Western civilization. Russia that has always been torn between the West and the East is still playing a great role. 
Western societies are undergoing a tremendous change. How can we come together when there is such a multiplicity of voices? So it is important that the Hebrew Bible be a foundational cultural force. Now, that does not mean that we have to agree on everything. Uh, the Bible is a notoriously difficult document, and I'll explain why in a few minutes. But the interpretive approaches have widely differed. And that's okay, because it's a document of tremendous depth. The only way to mind this depth is to look at it from different angles. The, there is the Jewish tradition of interpretation, the Christian tradition of interpretation, there is there are modern scientific approaches. They all differ. And the reason they differ is because the Bible is a unique kind of a text. Eric Auerbach, a Jewish-German professor of Romance languages who found refuge refuge during the Nazi era in Istanbul has written a book called Mimesis. In that book, devoted to literature in general, the first chapter is about the Bible and it contrasts how a Hebrew biblical writing is different from Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Whereas the latter is composed in a lush visual manner with every detail exposed and expressed, attempting to create a visual image in our eyes. The Bible, very differently, leaves many lacunae in its terse, concise presentation. It tends not to describe feelings or how the characters deal with their challenges, what they felt, what they thought. It describes actions, and only some actions. It does not set much of a background. Just enough. Auerbach thought that this method of presentation draws in the reader. It forces the reader to reconstruct the background, to understand how, feel, how, they fit, how the details fit together. It is as if you were given a uh, costume and brought into a stage where there are other characters. Not much is explained to you and it's up to you to reconstruct, to reformulate, to understand the relationships between characters and where and when and how they are dealing with one another. This unique method of storytelling, and not only storytelling, also legal parts, draws in the reader, makes the reader part of the experience, forces the reader to draw upon his own or her own experiences and feelings. And with that effort, enrolls the reader in the construction of meaning. What this means is that the stage is set for us. We are led, we're persuaded, we're compelled to certain conclusions. 
These conclusions may differ between individuals and they may differ based on the interpretive tradition in which you had been raised or upon your own experiences. For example, someone who has been greatly affected by an authority figure may relate to the character of God in biblical literature differently than someone who had not, who had a wise teacher or who had a kind, dedicated father. In this way, we are also actors in the biblical drama. And that's a part of the design. That is how it's meant to be. That is the central feature of biblical writing that has made it such a popular piece of literature and such a tremendous cultural force. So when I called the blog what it tells, not what it says, I was referring to this. It is, of course, important to understand what it says. You need the philology, syntax, historical understanding, and above all, you need to be guided by your own interpretive tradition. Yet, if we consider what is said and what is withheld, what is explicated, what is alluded to, and the use of ambiguity precisely to draw in the leader, the, re the reader, I'm sorry, uh, to become a part of the story, and we focus on that, then we go to the heart of biblical teaching. We understand what it aims to tell us. We're no longer focused only on what it says. Of course, you must know what it says. You must understand it or you'll be led to dead ends or you will be misled. Yet, focusing our inquiry on what it tells, what it's trying to convey to you, and that may be a spiritual fact, a religious teaching, a point about human nature, a moral indication, a piece of advice, and so many, many things for this variegated, inspired document is beyond any simplistic approach. By focusing on what it tells, not by what it says, we can all join together. It no longer matters where you come from. We can begin to talk about what is the Bible teaching not simply what it says. Now, for a modern reader of the Bible, one has to contend with the documentary hypothesis. Leon Cass uh, is producing a series of commentaries, uh, and the first one that came out is on Genesis. He's completed one on Exodus as well. The beginning of wisdom and Genesis has an introduction in which he discusses this issue. For if you say that the documentary hypothesis is right, you're not reading a unified book. You're reading a 
bunch of documents stapled together that speak in different voices, have different perspectives, and uh, teach different things. We are not going to get into that debate, but one cannot begin to study uh, Hebrew Bible in the way in which I propose here without leaving the documentary hypothesis aside. Suffice it to say that this kind of literary approach relies on recurring motifs, context, unifying uh, assumptions that are inherent in the text. We will bypass the documentary hypothesis, just like we will bypass areas of interpretive contention. If we do not, we cannot get started. The discussion of the documentary hypothesis, the discussion of various levels of interpretation, the discussion of who is right and who is wrong, is not for this podcast. Here we're going to try to understand what the Bible actually tells not what it says. I think that the proof will be in the pudding. What I mean by that is that if we see that this approach truly produces results, if it produces sparkling insights, great understanding, and nuggets of wisdom, and if they are defensively based on the text, then one doesn't need to prove anything. That is in itself sufficient. If it does not, then that may not be the approach for you. I'm simply sharing. I'm not here to impose this way of studying the Bible on anybody. I simply think that we can come together. The world needs to come together. We can share, we can learn, whatever our cultural, national, or religious background. With that, I do want to point out that my, my basis for what it says will be the Jewish interpretive tradition for several reasons. First of all, that is what I know. I've spent many years and decades in applying, delving, and understanding this 3,000-year-old tradition. And Make no mistake, it is very, very gated. There is not one way to read the verse. Any particular verse might have dozens of interpretations. But as we as we spoke in, in about interpretive traditions, there is an underlying unity to the approach. So that will determine for us what it says. Then we will ask, what does it withhold? Where is the ambiguity? Why is certain expression chosen rather than another? How with the use of these techniques and also intertextuality and implied reference to other parts of the Bible, and by the way, intertextuality is a good proof against the documentary hypothesis. But again, leaving that aside, how are all these techniques that we've just identified and many others that we will encounter bring us, the reader, into the text. What is the text trying 
to tell us to tell us what is it trying to indicate to us and teach us not what it says but what it tells that does not mean that we will always need to adapt the simplest reading of the text it may very well may be and will often be so that the simplest meaning has problems we might fight it find that it does not fit well with the local context with the way the, the words are used elsewhere or with another part of the bible where it might appear that a particular teaching is negated or expressed differently of course it could be that complementary approaches is one way in which the bible speaks to men nothing is simple it's like the parable of three blind men and the elephant more so in the nature of reality our vision can only see one thing at a time if we i even sighted and we see the front of the elephant by definition we cannot see the back and if we see the back at that moment we're not seeing the front it is okay that the document of profundity and complexity such as the hebrew bible will present alternative and complementary methods uh, i'm sorry pictures to us it will then be up to us to reconcile and get a stereoscopic vision uh, and uh, that is also a matter of hard work for the interpreter when we do all these things when we look at how it's used elsewhere when we understand the intentional ambiguities when we recognize how we're being drawn into the picture in order to lead us to a conclusion then we might begin to understand what it tells us the work is great and the day is short there's much to accomplish i hope that you will stay with me on this great journey of understanding i hope that whether you agree or not with everything i propose that you will gain something from it i hope you will come out of it more erudite more spiritually attuned more aware more wise and a good human being i will end by saying welcome friend and colleague may you be blessed and may you have wealth and health and time to enjoy it